Good evening. Um, welcome to the first of a series of three lectures uh, being given by uh, um, Alex Filipenko tonight. And uh, Professor David Spurgle is going to introduce him in a moment. Uh, these lectures are being jointly sponsored by the uh, uh, Princeton University Press and the Public Lectures Committee at Princeton University. And in the Public Lectures Committee, the funds of the Edward Farnham Foundation are responsible for allowing Alex to, to come here. And this was founded uh, in 1939 by a bequest of George Farnham of the class of 1894 in memory of his brother J. J. Edward Farnham of the class of 1890 for the purpose of providing lectures from time to time by men of prominence not connected with the university. So when I informed Alex of this uh, tonight, he was very surprised, especially in the light of the current controversy going on about uh, the gender roles in, in, in science as to why this hasn't been updated. But I, we're, um, I don't know if you can update this or not. In any case, I'm going to uh, uh, turn this over to uh, Professor Spurgle, the uh, Department of Astrophysics, who's going to introduce our speaker tonight. It's a pleasure to be able to introduce Alex. Alex, as you'll soon discover, is a superb lecturer who convey with great clarity and enthusiasm the advances in the field. But Alex is much more than just a great teacher. He's also a great scholar. He has been at the forefront of many of the great advances in our field. He's shown in his, over the years, both uh, superb taste. He's worked on important problems like supernovae, black holes, gamma ray bursts, and done very high quality work. He's someone who's um, an observer who gets things right. And one mark of this is he's someone who pays attention to details. In astronomy, like in many fields, when you've, you know you've made it when they've named something after you. And there's a, a famous angle that observers use <laughs> that's named after Alex. Well, not directly after Alex. You have to understand, Alex, when he was younger, had a nickname Popsicle, when he was in graduate school. <laughs> and um, he wrote a paper early on about how you want to orient a spectrograph, to take an accurate spectrum with respect to the atmosphere, and pointed out you have to be very careful in how you do this to get accurate measurements. And uh, this is, you know, one of the many aspects of Alex, both important problems and careful work. But Alex, when he was younger, was famous for getting up at Whenever anyone gave a talk and said, what angle did you orient that at? <laughs> and uh, this became known in the field as the popsicle angle. <laughs> so you are about to hear what I'm sure will be a fascinating lecture by the man responsible for the popsicle <laughs> angle. Alan. <laughs> Well, thank you, David and Lee, for those kind introductions. I hadn't heard that term in quite some time, the popsicle angle. Popsicle was the nickname given to me by my thesis advisor, Wallace Sargent. And I never could figure out whether he gave me that nickname because it's a way to figure out or to remember how many P's and L's there are in my name, popsicle, two P's, one L, or whether it's because he thought I was some sort of a sucker or something, you know. So uh, uh, anyway, um, 
It is a, a great pleasure to be here this evening and for the next uh, two evenings as well. I like visiting Princeton because it is home to so many great scholars and indeed, you know, David Spurgle and Scott Tremaine and others uh, in the Department of Astrophysical Sciences uh, have done work that I've admired for many, many years. So it's great to come here and speak in these hallowed halls. I'll be speaking for the next three nights about explosive phenomena in the universe and how interesting they are and the effects they have on space around them and the bizarre objects that they produce and how these explosions can be used to determine things of cosmological significance. In other words, studying the, the largest scales in the universe. That'll be, that'll be Friday evening's talk. Today I'd like to introduce the, the subject of celestial fireworks, stellar explosions, by just saying that, you know, when stars explode, they're the greatest Fourth of July fireworks show that you will ever, have, you will ever see. And, and, and few among us would not like to see a spectacular fireworks show. You know, they're just the grandest explosions. Not that I, you know, want to explode things in ways that will hurt anyone, but, you know, I'm not some sort of, you know, terrorist or anything like that, but I, but I do like explosions seen from afar. And I always have. I mean, from my earliest memories, I liked firecrackers and cherry bombs and things like that. And I dug up an ancient photograph. Um, this is me as a senior in high school 30 years ago, president of the science club, running some sort of a lunchtime demonstration on explosives, basically, and, and uh, <laughs> anyway, it turns out that at my high school, the ventilation system was interconnected throughout all the rooms, and at lunchtime, around 12.30, into the administration building started pouring all this smoke, and they were about to call the fire department when someone said, wait a minute, let's go to the weekly bulletin. Isn't Alex Filipenko doing something for the science club at lunch today? And they looked it up, and sure enough, you know, a demonstration of pyrotechnics, and they said, oh, okay, let's run over there. And they opened the door, they saw me, and they go, oh, okay, it's just you. That's okay. You know, <laughs> meanwhile, I'm blowing up the school. But anyway, um, uh, I always kind of liked explosions, and so I had this natural affinity to study celestial explosions. And they really are quite grand and important, as I will show you during the course of these three talks. Here is a star that was about the same brightness as any one of these random stars in its vicinity before it blew up. And then this star blew up and basically became about a billion times more powerful than the sun. So if this were to happen to the sun, and it won't, you'd need you know sunblock of a billion or supernova block one billion to protect you because these exploding stars are called supernovas, okay? So they're truly amazing events. And as I said, most stars do not suffer such a fate. Most stars, like our sun, will die in a much more quiescent way. In about five billion years, our sun will have become gradually considerably more powerful, more luminous than it is now, but it will do so in a gradual way, and the oceans will eventually evaporate away and all that kind of stuff. And near the end of those five or six billion years, it will bloat to a considerable size, perhaps even swallowing the orbit of Mercury. And it will become much, much more luminous, more 
powerful, and certainly life on Earth will be incinerated by that point, if not well before that. But it won't actually explode, okay, when it becomes this giant star, this red giant. It will gently sort of burp away its outer atmosphere of gases in a series of what I call cosmic burps, and they end up looking like pretty nebulas like this, little clouds of gas surrounding a giant, a previously giant star that is now becoming denuded. You know, the outer atmospheres are being uh, chucked away like this, leaving behind just the hot inner core of the star. And we don't know exactly what our sun and its environment will look like, but it'll look generically like some of these objects. If we could dim the lights a little bit, I think that some of these images would, would look a lot prettier. Don't dim them all away. That can be sleep-inducing, but oh, that's, that's fine. Great. So our sun will, will die in this sort of a fashion, and what will be left of the sun is just its cinders, which will be very small. Roughly half of the remaining, roughly half of the mass of our sun, the current mass, will remain and it will be in an object roughly the size of the Earth. This one is actually a little bit smaller than the Earth, but it'll be roughly the size of the Earth. And it'll be a very strange sort of material because it got something like half the mass of our sun compressed into a volume roughly the size of the Earth. That's a very weird kind of material. It's called degenerate matter by quantum physicists, not because it's morally reprehensible or anything like that, but this is simply the name given to this matter that forms a white dwarf. And our sun will form this white dwarf, and then it'll just float around in our galaxy for billions upon billions of years. So that'll be the end of our sun, and that is in fact the end of most stars. But a small minority of stars die in a much more spectacular way. At the end of their lives, they go through an uncontrolled chain of nuclear reactions or their central part collapses and the outer parts get ejected away. I'll talk about these mechanisms in more detail tonight. But in one of these two fundamental ways, the star basically blows up, leaving either nothing at all behind or an even more bizarre object than a white dwarf, a neutron star or perhaps even a black hole. And it's the black holes that I'll talk about primarily tomorrow evening. So these stars explode, and they light up the sky surrounding that star. So, you know, if you were on a life-giving planet nearby, you'd have to really worry a lot. But from a safe distance, they're fun to watch. But they're also astrophysically important. You know, they give rise to these bizarre objects, neutron stars and black holes, where physicists can test physical laws in conditions that are simply not reproducible in terrestrial laboratories. We can't make these kinds of objects in our labs, yet we can study them out in space. So they're useful for increasing our understanding of physics. Moreover, these explosions can compress clouds of gas in their vicinity, and these compressed clouds can gravitationally then contract and give rise to new stars. So, in, in fact, the death of one star can help uh, the process of star formation, of new stars being born, of stellar birth. So they're important in that respect as well. And they produce high-energy charged particles that 
are called cosmic rays, and some of them even come and interact with living tissue causing mutations, most of which are bad, but some of which, of course, are good. And so supernovae contribute to the process of, of evolution of living things. And they heat up the gases around them, creating giant galactic fountains of hot gas spewing out of galaxies. So they affect the structure of the interstellar medium of galaxies, the space between the stars. So they have all kinds of effects on galaxies. And then, being so bright, they can be seen at vast distances, and we can use them to calibrate huge distances in the universe, as I'll discuss on Friday. And that process led to the discovery some years ago that the expansion of our universe is speeding up with time, accelerating, being propelled by some sort of a weird anti-gravity. And we realize this through studies of supernovae. So supernovae have assumed a central importance in astrophysics, in many, many subfields of astrophysics. But from the human perspective, their most important aspect is that they produce, during the process of exploding, and they expel into space the elements so critical to life as we know it. The carbon in your cells, the oxygen that you breathe, the calcium in your bones, the iron in your red blood cells. All these were either produced during the explosion or produced prior to the explosion but expelled into space, making these elements available for the production of new stars, planets, and ultimately life. So when you look at a supernova like this and you watch it brighten and fade, and it takes a few weeks to brighten and then a few months to fade, what you're seeing is this colossal explosion, which is a, a runaway chain of nuclear reactions that's producing a lot of these heavy elements and ejecting them into space at speeds of thousands of miles per second. And these ejected gases then eventually mingle with other gases in space. As you can see here, a supernova explosion, and then these synthesized elements, chemically enriched gases expanding out and eventually mingling with other clouds in space. This process of the chemical pollution of the cosmos is what ultimately led to life as we know it. So here is the 1,000-year-old remnant of a supernova studied primarily by Asian astronomers in 1054. And when we analyze these gases, we can tell that they are enriched in heavy elements that just could not have been there prior to the star's explosion, or at least certainly not there at the time the star was born. Okay, there's just too many of these heavy elements. And over tens of thousands of years, these chemically enriched gases spread out, mingle with other clouds, forming eventually giant gravitationally bound structures such as this, which begin to collapse and then form in the interiors new stars. And they can't be seen in this optical picture because there's too much junk hiding the view, but with radio telescopes and infrared telescopes, you can actually see new stars 
being born there. Sometimes you can even see them with optical telescopes if they're in a relatively unobscured region. But here are two newly formed stars or stars still forming. And the amazing thing is, is that we often see around such newly formed stars or still forming stars disks that can be interpreted as remaining disks of gas and dust, fine particular matter made out of these heavy elements like carbon and silicates and things like that. And we now know that in these disks, planets can, can form. Now, we have not yet detected small, rocky, terrestrial planets. Our detection techniques are not yet good enough, but I think that pretty soon they will be good enough to detect such planets. Big ones have been detected by my colleagues Jeff Marcy and Paul Butler. And so we know of big planets around other stars, and, and they and, and other people around the world have, have detected many of these things. So we expect that there are also the rocky Earth-like planets, all right? And on these rocky Earth-like planets, in some cases, presumably, conditions are good enough for liquid water to exist and for life as we know it to eventually emerge and for eventually self-replicating complex molecules like, like DNA to emerge as well, all right? So, so it's this process of stellar death that makes the future, or the, the present of the universe, but the future as seen from that star's perspective, it, it enriches the future of the universe, making, making the universe so much more interesting and so much more complex with, with living things that can ask these questions and, and even solve some of these conundrums. So the discovery of planets around other stars has rekindled the age-old question of whether we're alone in the universe, is anybody out there, and in particular, is there intelligence out there that is also asking these kinds of questions and slowly but surely coming to sensible answers. We don't yet know whether there are any other creatures out there. Certainly we don't know if there's any intelligent creatures out there, but uh, it seems like it's a process that, that might be ubiquitous throughout the universe, this business of planet formation and the formation of complex molecules. And maybe, maybe primitive life is easy to form. Maybe intelligence at our level is very, very difficult to form. We just don't know yet, you know. But studies like this will, will eventually, I hope, tell us. Now, you might say, you know, lots of evidence has been published that there's intelligent creatures out there. I mean, you've seen the, the headlines, you know, aliens back Clinton. But I should just warn you that not everything that you need, that not everything that you read in newspapers and, and magazines is, is necessarily correct, you know. So, I mean, weekly world news, gee whiz, you know. <laughs> I don't think this is a refereed journal. But anyway, what's interesting is that periodically you get these headlines and take a good look at this creature here. He seems to have changed parties a few years later, okay? Same, same general guy, but... Uh, and, and you notice they always seem to vote for the winner for some reason, you know? Anyway, um, okay. Well, this process of, of life, you know, we are made of star stuff, as, as Carl Sagan used to like to say, and, and that star stuff came from exploding stars, and I'd like to give you some of that evidence this evening. How do we really know this? 
Well, to study these things, we, we have to find them. But as I said, they're rare. Very few stars go through this process. So, you know, a typical galaxy, which is a gravitationally bound system of tens or hundreds of billions of stars, might have only one such supernova per century, okay? So if I were a really cruel advisor, I would have each of my students looking at one and only one galaxy night after night until they find a supernova, and then they graduate and move on to greener pastures, you know. Um, and it's hard work. There's actually a supernova in this picture, you know. You think it's this one here? No, that's a star in our own galaxy. How about that one? No, that's in our galaxy. That's in our galaxy. Turns out that's the supernova. But you wouldn't know it unless you took lots and lots of pictures of this galaxy and finally saw that there was something new in it. But if you restricted your attention to this one galaxy, as I said, it would be a pretty boring enterprise. So what we do is we look at many thousands of galaxies. Because one supernova per galaxy per 100 years is statistically, mathematically, the same statement as one supernova per 100 galaxies per year. Each one of these galaxies is going to produce a, a supernova per century, but they're all going to do it on average in different years. So roughly one of them is going to produce a supernova in any given year. To improve your odds even more, you could monitor thousands of galaxies and get tens of supernovae per year. And then you could study them in detail and learn about all their properties and stuff. So if you look at thousands of galaxies, you might think that would be a really terrible thing to have your graduate student do. You know, people shouldn't be granted tenure if that's what they make their graduate students do. Or, or tenure should be taken away if you make your graduate students look through telescopes looking for, for exploding stars. But in fact, it's, it's, really, it's really easy to do. You just use a telescope to take photograph of, photographs of galaxies, and, and you look for arrows. And where there are arrows, there, there are exploding stars. You see it? works that time, that time, that time, even twice in one galaxy. So by the, by the process of mathematical induction, it must work every time, you know. So, okay, so it's not so hard to find exploding stars, especially if you have a robotic telescope that's programmed to take pictures of more than 1,000 galaxies a night and something like seven or 8,000 galaxies during the course of a week. Then it can, you know, compare the new pictures with the old ones if it's properly programmed, and in my case, Dr. Wei Dong Li has very expertly programmed this robotic telescope to look at all these galaxies um, over the course of a week and to compare the new pictures with the old pictures. And usually there's nothing new in the new picture, but occasionally there will be something new, and then our software flags that with an arrow. But of course there could be other things like sometimes asteroids go flying through the field of view, and sometimes these energetic charged particles called cosmic rays hit the detector and they masquerade as exploding stars. So you always need a good team of undergraduates who will look at the final images and decide which ones are really the exploding stars. And their job really isn't that odious because out of maybe 1,200 images during the course of a night, the software will eliminate all but 50 to 100 as being uninteresting. And then the undergraduates look at the remaining 50 to 100 images and use their superior eye-brain combinations to determine which objects are, are worthy of further scrutiny, okay? And they get their hands dirty with research early on, and then they go on to good graduate schools like Princeton. So um, anyway. So our Katzman Automatic Imaging Telescope, Kate, which is running the Lick Observatory Supernova Search, 
has achieved amazing success in the past few years. We got going in 1997. We found one supernova that year. That was, of course, not a world record, especially since the supernova was one of, of dubious distinction. You see its name here, Supernova 1997BS. Well, you know, this is definitely a supernova of questionable integrity, given its name, you know, supernova. Well, it turns out they're named in order of discovery from A through Z, AA through AZ, AB through AZ, BA through BZ. And so I will leave it as an exercise that's kind of boring, actually, for the interested listener to find out what number in the sequence that happened to be. Ironically, we now think that this wasn't a true supernova. Rather, we think this little wimpy thing was just a particularly energetic outburst of a star near the end of its life, but not at the very end. So this was a particularly energetic belch, but not self-destruction. Because we have detected the surviving star in the years since that time. The star has survived. So we think it's just a massive star getting ready to die, but not quite dead yet. So ironically, this was a supernova of questionable integrity. Well, since then, we've done very, very well, setting a bunch of world records. And we're especially proud of the fact that we found the first supernova of the new millennium, regardless of your definition of the new millennium. You see, not that that's astrophysically important, but maybe it'll be put in the Guinness Book of World Records or something like that. Anyway, we find about as many supernovae as all other groups in the world combined who work in this area. So we're doing very, very well. And we have a website where you can monitor our progress. All right, we then look more closely at our discoveries with bigger telescopes. And we use these bigger telescopes to collect a lot of light and to pass that light through a prism like this and produce a rainbow, which we call a spectrum. Now, the measurement of the brightness of the light as a function of color or the wavelength of light can tell you all sorts of interesting physical things about the object that is emitting the light. Like you can determine the temperature and the pressure and the chemical composition of the gases and things like that, densities and stuff. So this process of spectroscopy is very, very important. That's really where astronomy turned into astrophysics is when people started doing quantitative spectroscopy. So if I plot the brightness of the light along one axis as a function of the color or the wavelength of the light on the other axis, you get brightness or intensity versus color going from blue to red to the infrared. You get things that kind of look like roller coasters. And the main thing to take from this diagram is simply that there are two main types of exploding stars. Uh, somewhat boringly called type 1 and type 2. See, astronomers are kind of boring people. We could have called these things Fred and Gene or something like that, but, but no, we call them type 1 and type 2. But they're really very interesting because from the spectrum, first of all, you can see all these elements, oxygen and silicon and sulfur and iron. These are the things that were synthesized by the blast or shortly before the star decided to explode. These are the the elements that now populate the periodic table of the elements. And second, you can see that they come in these two classes, those that contain hydrogen, the most common element in the universe, and those that do not contain hydrogen, which is a bit odd because hydrogen outnumbers everything else in the universe by a long shot, okay? So this alone suggests that there may be two distinct ways in which appropriate stars can explode. 
Moreover, if you plot how bright these guys are as a function of time, they brighten and fade in different ways as well. The type 1s basically brighten and fade monotonically, but type 2s tend to stay the same brightness for a while, and then they fade. And there are sub-variations among these classes about which I'll have a little bit more to say tomorrow night, but not tonight. Okay, so there's basically for tonight, there's type 1s and type 2s. So astronomers studying these things have now determined that the type 1As, I'm sorry, type 1s, but we'll call them 1As, come from a star that is gravitationally bound to another star. So they're circling each other, or more correctly, they're circling their common center of mass. And that's quite common. Most of the stars you see in the sky, if you looked at them sufficiently carefully, you would find that they are double or even triple star systems. But the case of the type 1 supernova is special because one of these stars is a white dwarf, like the thing that our sun will become in about 6 billion years. And the other star is an aging star that begins transferring some of its material to the white dwarf. Essentially, the gravity of the white dwarf is such that if this other star expands sufficiently, as it will do near the end of its life, when all stars expand a little bit, then this star's gravity can dominate over that star's gravity, and it can actually steal the material. And these two things are rotating around one another, so you get a disk of material that gradually settles onto this white dwarf. And that, in principle, can gradually increase the mass of the white dwarf. Now, it turns out that this degenerate matter cannot increase in mass without bound. There is a limiting mass beyond which the white dwarf cannot go. And this limiting mass was discovered by Chandrasekhar on a voyage from India, his home, to England, where he was to be educated. And during this long voyage, he did some calculations shortly after the birth of quantum physics and and, you know, general relativity and things like that, and special relativity. And he figured out that when you put all these things together, there's this limiting mass beyond which a white dwarf can't go. And largely for this work that he did on his way to becoming educated, he won many decades later the Nobel Prize in physics. Okay, so that's a pretty good summer vacation, you know, and you win the Nobel Prize for your work uh, later on. Now, he didn't know exactly what would happen, but he just knew that that was a limiting mass. And now we know that one thing that can happen is that at this limiting mass, the white dwarf explodes. Basically, you get a runaway chain of nuclear reactions where the energy released by one nuclear reaction gets the nuclei near it moving faster. That increases their probability of undergoing nuclear fusion. So they then release energy, and they then increase the probability that their neighbors undergo nuclear fusion, and you get a, what's called a thermonuclear runaway. So this is basically a nuclear bomb, all right? And during this bomb, relatively light elements like carbon and oxygen, the composition of the white dwarf, get fused into elements like nickel and iron, all right? And that process then disrupts the white dwarf and produces a bunch of radioactive nuclei, which then glow for several months, and that's what causes the supernova to be visible for a number of months. So that was at least the theory. Now, one would like to test it, 
And Tycho Brahe, in the year 1572, observed a supernova in our own galaxy in considerable detail. In fact, he wrote a book about it, and he became quite famous as a result of this book. And this supernova, being in our own galaxy, is relatively nearby and has been studied fairly carefully at radio wavelengths and X-ray wavelengths and optical and all that. And we see now an expanding bubble of chemically enriched gases. And so one might think, well, gee whiz, if the white dwarf exploded, maybe the star that donated the mass to the white dwarf, making it reach its Chandrasekhar limit, maybe it survived and it's still there, right? We might be able to find the donor star if we search sufficiently carefully. So my colleagues and I, some years ago, started studying the visible stars in the direction of Tycho's supernova remnant, shown here in a Chandra X-ray observatory image. It's just kind of pretty, so we're just showing it here. But anyway, here's a bunch of stars along the line of sight toward the center of the supernova remnant. And we started studying these stars. In particular, we were trying to find a star with anomalously high motion careening through the galaxy, as might be expected if its companion blew up and now the system becomes unbound and so the surviving star just goes zooming along. It's like a slingshot, effectively, okay? And we found one star in the general vicinity of where the supernova is thought to have occurred. We know it occurred X thousand light years away. I forgot how many thousands of light years. And it is screaming through our galaxy at a very fast rate. So we think that that's the surviving companion to this uh, previously bound system. So we think that at least some supernovae of this kind occur as a result of this process of a normal star donating material to a degenerate white dwarf until it reaches this unstable limit. Okay? So that's kind of cool. So there's uh, one of these guys, and uh, it was fun to study these objects in, in, in some detail. Um, sorry, I showed you a type 1 before, but then the type 2s, I haven't yet told you what they are, and, and so here's a, a type 2, and they think, we think they come from very different kinds of stars than these white dwarfs. These type 2s, we think, come from a very, very massive kind of a star, 10 or 20 or 30 times the mass of our sun, which near the end of its life becomes what's called a red supergiant. Now, a good example is Betelgeuse in the shoulder of Orion. If you look at Orion, Orion's facing you. The left shoulder is one of these supergiant stars. And here is an image with the Hubble Space Telescope of this star. It's one of the few stars whose disk we can actually see. Most stars are too far away. They just look like points of light, even through a telescope. Here's the size of the star compared to Earth's orbit. Not Earth, but Earth's orbit would fit comfortably inside the star. Jupiter's orbit would barely fit inside the star. So this is a, this is a huge, huge star. It's a red supergiant star. And what we think is going on is that in the core of the star, elements have successively fused from light to heavy over many more steps than will ever be possible for our sun. Our sun is fusing hydrogen to helium, and then later on it'll fuse 
helium to carbon and oxygen. But there the process will start because our sun is not massive enough and doesn't have enough gravity in the middle to compress these carbon and oxygen nuclei to such a state where they're likely to fuse with one another. But a big, massive star has a huge gravity, a huge pressure in the middle. And so it can compress the carbon and oxygen nuclei so that they eventually form neon and magnesium and then silicon and sulfur and then eventually iron. So the ashes of one set of nuclear reactions become the fuel for the next set of nuclear reactions. Okay? All the way up to iron. And each of these fusion reactions liberates energy and keeps the star puffed up, keeps it alive in a sense. But once you get to iron, the process has to stop because iron is the most tightly bound of the common nuclei. Fusion of iron into heavier nuclei doesn't liberate energy. Rather, such fusion would rob the star of energy, and then the star would have a harder time holding itself up. So it doesn't do that. It doesn't fuse iron. Okay? But the iron core builds up in a time scale of about a day, and eventually it becomes massive enough to basically not be able to hold itself up. It's the iron analog of the white dwarf's Chandrasekhar limit. And what happens is the iron core literally collapses. And what used to be ordinary electrons and protons free to roam around, they combine to form neutrons and a ghostly kind of a particle called a neutrino. The neutrinos go flying out of the star. The neutrons all congregate in the middle. And this collapse brings an object that's about the size of the Earth down to something comparable to the size of Princeton, a little bit bigger, maybe New York City, okay? And it's like when you fall on a trampoline. If I can have the lights up a little bit, I'll do a little demo here. When you go down on a trampoline, now I don't have one here, you don't reach an equilibrium configuration right away, right? You bounce up a little bit, and then you kind of fall down again, and you bounce around. Well, in a similar way, when this core collapses and forms of massive neutrons, they become so squished together that eventually the forces among them become repulsive, pushing them apart. The neutron ball of neutrons, the proto-neutron star, bounces back, and that hits the surrounding layers of material that are falling in, and the collision can help propel the gases outwards. And I have a little demo here that I'd like to show, where this little basketball, in fact, it's the official NBA basket small, because it's a small basketball. I'm going to bounce this off of the floor here. This is the analog of this core collapsing in on itself, forming a ball of neutrons, and then bouncing back. That's this part. Okay, it doesn't bounce up to the height from which it started because it loses some energy during the bounce. Okay, now this tennis ball will be all the surrounding layers which suddenly have had the floor taken out from under them, right? The core has collapsed, so there's suddenly no pressure holding them up. So they say, okay, we're going to fall because gravity is pulling us inwards. That's the tennis ball, okay? And it doesn't bounce very high either. You see, it's all fair. But now I'll put the tennis ball on top of the basket small. And you see that? It was zooming away. And in my class, I see it falling asleep. I could cleverly aim this a little bit like that. And <laughs> like that. So, uh, not that you were falling asleep, but uh, thank you very much, right? So, 
So there's this ejection process that can occur. And the collapse of a massive star to form something really dense then can lead, at least partially, to an ejection of the outer layers. Now, I say partially because it turns out that the bounce doesn't quite work. As you saw, the tennis ball comes eventually crashing back down to the Earth. That's because Earth's gravity is pretty strong. But so, too, is the star's gravity. The ejector would only go out part of the way and then come crashing back in if this mechanical bounce were all there, there is to it. But it turns out that these little neutrinos that are emitted help push the material out and create a successful explosion. Now, this was first postulated by Fritz Zwicky, a brilliant but rather arrogant astrophysicist at Caltech. We can have the lights down again. Thanks. Uh, he was brilliant. He was years ahead of his time in a number of areas of astrophysics. But uh, he thought he was pretty smart, and he thought his colleagues were pretty dumb. And, you know, Caltech is a pretty good place. Um, you know, people there don't like to be called dumb. But uh, he referred to his colleagues as spherical bastards, because they're bastards any way you look at them. And uh, so, you know, you don't, you don't make a lot of friends when you go around calling your colleagues spherical bastards, all right? So scientifically, he's my hero, because, you know, he did so many things. I'll talk about him again in my third lecture, because he came up with the concept of dark matter, which pervades the universe decades before anyone else did. But personally, he wasn't the nicest guy. Anyway, here he's probably trying to show you, show some of his dim Caltech colleagues, what the core of a massive star does when it collapses at the end of its life. Now here, David Arnett, formerly of the University of Chicago, now at Arizona, is showing you what the Sears Tower would look like if compressed to the density, the mass per unit volume, of a neutron star. It would be this little gumball. Okay, so the, the mass of neutrons that's left behind is like a gigantic atomic nucleus, but without the protons. But it's got about the same density as nuclear material, all right? Because all the electrons and protons have come together and formed neutrons. So you have this giant mass of neutrons. It's very, very dense. It's a very bizarre state of matter, okay? And it looks something like this. It's perhaps the size of a city, maybe 10 or 20 kilometers in radius, a big city, let's say, okay? And it's, it's just a really weird thing that we've never been able to reproduce in the laboratory. And you might say, well, how do you really know that these things exist? Well, um, just one second here. You can tell that they exist because we've seen them in the middle of remnants that are thought to be associated with massive stars that exploded a few hundred years ago in the manner which I just stated. Okay, so there's, there's a neutron star right there. It's still glowing because this is a supernova remnant that's only a few hundred years old, and you can see it glowing there. And some of these guys we even see pulsating. Here's the Crab Nebula supernova remnant. It's about a thousand years old. And that star right there is pulsing, all right? Here you don't see it, or you see it only just barely, and there you do see it. And 33 times per second, it flashes on. Boop, 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 like that. And what we think is going on is you've got a rotating neutron star with a strong magnetic field, okay? And this magnetic field is rotating, so that generates all sorts of electric 
fields as well. And these electric fields accelerate charged particles along this axis of rotation, and charged particles that are accelerated emit radiation. Now, the beam is continuous, but the whole thing is rotating. So if I'm rotating along like this with my laser beam, don't worry, flickering past your eyes won't do any harm. It's the lighthouse effect, okay? You see it only when it's pointing towards you, but it's on all the time. So many, many such pulsars have been found, and some have even been found in young supernova remnants, and so we really do think that, that this is what's going on, okay? Now, we would like to, however, really make sure that this is what's going on by watching the whole process from supernova explosion to the birth of a neutron star. After all, the remnants I showed you are a few hundred years old. We weren't there to observe the supernovae with modern telescopes. We're not exactly sure what those exploding stars would have looked like when they exploded. So it would be nice to really know that this is what the collapsing core of a massive star does. But in our own galaxy, it takes a long time to see supernovae. The last easily visible one was Kepler's supernova of 1604, and before that was Tycho's supernova of 1572. So if we just had to wait around for a supernova in our own galaxy, we'd be waiting for a long time, all right? But we lucked out, because in 1987, the light from a relatively nearby supernova was detected. It turns out one of these core-collapsing supernovae went off in a small galaxy known as the Large Magellanic Cloud, the Large Cloud of Magellan, even though Ferdinand Magellan was not the first to see it. That's one of two dwarfish galaxies that are orbiting around our Milky Way. And in fact, Professor Spurgle has studied how big galaxies like our own occasionally munch on these little guys for lunch. Someday, these guys will become a snack of our Milky Way galaxy. But for now, they are their own little, you know, diminutive galaxies. And this one's about 170,000 light years away. That one's about 210,000 light years away, which means we're seeing the light as it was, you know, 170,000 years ago. But that's, that's a stone's throw in astronomy. You know, I'll get to cosmology on Friday. But, you know, there we're talking about billions of light years. A few hundred thousand? That's your backyard. So in 1987, we saw a star explode in the Large Magellanic Cloud near this giant cloud of gas, which is the largest stellar nursery in our local group of galaxies. Big, massive stars are being formed there right now and have been formed there for the past few tens of millions of years. It turns out Big, massive stars don't live a long time because although they have a lot of fuel to burn, they're burning it so quickly in the nuclear sense that they run out of fuel very quickly. And so we expect massive stars to die in about the same place where they are born. So the fact that the star went off close to this giant stellar nursery already suggested that it was one of these massive stars that went off. And indeed, subsequent studies showed that it was indeed one of these massive supergiant stars. And this was such a monumental event that, in fact, it made the cover of Time magazine, bang, a star explodes, providing new clues to the nature of the universe. I mean, this is heavy stuff, right? It was really fantastic. I mean, I, I remember 
you know, hearing about the supernova going off. I happened to be observing at Palomar Observatory in California the night that it was discovered. But you can't see the clouds of Magellan from Southern California. They're, they're in the Southern Hemisphere, pretty far south. So I couldn't do anything about it, but it was a, it was a very, very exciting time. So suddenly we had a star in our own backyard with which we could test some of these theories, all right? And indeed, we did that. We tested them with modern telescopes. The first test was, was it a massive star that exploded? And indeed, there are pictures of the large Magellanic Cloud, multiple pictures taken prior to the explosion, and we know exactly where the explosion occurred. And there's the star that exploded, the progenitor of this first discovered supernova of the year 1987. There's the progenitor star. It no longer exists. That star is a massive evolved star. We can tell it's near the end of its life. So that aspect of our hypothesis was confirmed. However, nature, as usual, threw us a little bone, a little wrench. It turned out that this was a kind of a star known as a blue supergiant, not a red supergiant. It's still a very massive, very powerful star, but it's not as big as a red supergiant. It's smaller and hotter. And we're still trying to figure out just why it wasn't the same as theory had predicted. And there are two main hypotheses. One is that the chemical composition of the Large Magellanic Cloud differs from that of the run-of-the-mill big galaxy because big galaxies have lots of stars going off, and they tend to retain their heavy elements. Whereas little galaxies have fewer stars going off, and those that do go off tend to eject those elements out of the galaxy, because the galaxy isn't very much gravitationally bound. You know, it is sort of, but it's harder to hang on to the gas. So little galaxies like this don't retain heavy elements as much as big galaxies do, and it turns out that the amount of heavy elements in a star can affect its structure, and that's what caused this star to be a blue supergiant rather than a red supergiant. Another hypothesis is that the star actually swallowed another star before blowing up, and that affected its atmospheric structure as well. So this was just a beautiful case of an observation confirming some of what we thought we already knew, but causing us to go back to the drawing board to some degree and modify our theories. And, and that's the way science works. It's the interplay between experiments and observation and theory. The next thing. Remember I said that the core of the star collapses and it forms a neutron star. And in the process, a flood of neutrinos is emitted. Okay? The flood of neutrinos emitted not just because the process of combining a proton and electron produces lots of neutrinos, it does, but also you end up with this 100 billion degree neutron star, this very young neutron star, and at a temperature of 100 billion degrees, it turns out that what objects do is they emit lots and lots of neutrinos. At least that's what can escape from the star. Everything else kind of gets trapped inside the star. So lots and lots of neutrinos are emitted by this 100 billion degree star this neutron star, and 99% of all of the energy ever released by this collapsing core gets emitted in the form of neutrinos, not optical light. 99% is neutrinos, 
1% is the energy of motion of the ejected material, and 1 one-hundredth of a percent is the visible light that you see. So a supernova is very bright. The visible light you see, nevertheless, is just a small sideshow to what's really happening, and that is a huge number of neutrinos are released. So you might say, okay, let's see whether the neutrinos really were released. Well, it turns out that in the 1980s, as is the case now, many physicists have been interested in studying the decay of certain particles, like the proton. The proton is predicted to decay after something like 10 to the 32 power years. I mean, it's a very stable particle, but eventually it decays. And if you have enough protons, which you do in a swimming pool of water, some of them may decay this year. You know, if you've got enough protons, a few of them might decide to do it this year. All right, though most of them won't do it for a long time. So a number of physics groups throughout the world had set up deep underground these tanks of ultra-pure water where they could detect the decay of the proton basically by seeing the associated light that can be produced during the chain of reactions that's associated with the decay. And there are all these little, little detectors here that can detect the light from a proton decaying, okay? Or at least the, the light that it subsequently causes. Well, in a similar way, neutrinos zipping through can occasionally interact with the protons. Not very often. Neutrinos are very antisocial particles. They, they interact almost never. In fact, you could have a piece of lead, a light year thick, and half of all the neutrinos passing through it will not notice this light year of lead, okay? Six trillion mile thickness of lead, and half of the neutrinos passing through couldn't care less, okay? So neutrinos are not very interactive. But the prediction was that so many neutrinos got emitted by this process that even by the time they reached the Earth, 170,000 light years later, there should be billions of them passing through every square centimeter. And a few of them should interact. Well, two detectors operating at that time in the world detected each about a dozen neutrinos at the right time. They, they were detected right about when the neutrinos should have arrived from this great supernova. And they were detected by the interactions of neutrinos with the water. That, too, produces light, which can be detected uh, by these little phototubes. And so the neutrinos were detected. And from the number that were detected, you could calculate how many in total were emitted. And that number corresponds almost exactly to the energy associated with the collapsing core numbers just work out beautifully. A massive core of a star collapsed, releasing this gravitational energy, but eventually converting it into neutrinos, a few of which were detected. Then the final prediction is that this massive explosion should, according to standard theory, produce and eject lots of heavy elements. Okay? Elements that weren't there prior to the explosion. Now, there's so much energy in an exploding star that you can get not only the elements up to iron that can be reasonably produced even by a star that doesn't explode, but 
the elements heavier than iron that require energy for their production, they can be produced in an explosion like this because there's plenty of energy to go around. There's, you know, lots and lots of energy. So all sorts of nuclear reactions can occur that build up the elements heavier than iron and also build up many of the elements around the mass of iron. And so the detection of such elements would be sort of confirmation that this process is, is going on, the detection of elements that didn't used to be there but are now there and that are heavy and radioactive and stuff. That would be fantastic. So what astronomers did is they sent up some telescopes above Earth's atmosphere in rockets. Now, they don't stay above there very long. They come crashing down to the Earth. But in the brief amount of time that these telescopes aboard rockets were above the Earth's atmosphere, they were able to detect gamma rays, very energetic forms of electromagnetic radiation, even more energetic than X-rays. And the particular gamma rays from the supernova that were detected by these gamma ray telescopes come from the decay of one particular kind of radioactive nickel and another particular kind of radioactive cobalt and other particular kinds of radioactive elements that have very short lives. You know, they don't exist for very long. They produce only certain kinds of gamma rays, so it's like a fingerprint. You see these gamma rays with those particular energies, you know that you're radioactive cobalt. It's as simple as that. You know, it's like a crime detective scene. You know, you got the fingerprint. Gamma rays from short-lived forms of radioactive elements were detected from the supernova. They had to have been produced by the explosion. They couldn't have been there prior to the explosion because the star itself formed 10 million years ago. And even if those elements existed from the nebula that eventually formed the star, over 10 million years, those elements would have decayed away into other things. So the, the star produced these elements and it ejected them into the And even the carbon and oxygen that were produced by the star, you know, if none of these stars exploded ever, and if these heavy elements remained forever trapped inside the core or in a, you know, a dead white dwarf. They'd never become available as raw material for the production of new stars, planets, or life. So, so you need these explosions to create some of the elements and to eject all of them into cosmos. And the observations of Supernova 1987A definitively proved that theoretical assertion that the elements come from these explosions because they were detected in this explosion. And moreover, we know of no other way of producing sizable quantities of such heavy elements through any other natural process. So the three main predictions were, were verified. It's a massive star at the end of its life. Neutrinos were produced as a result of the collapsing core. And finally, we are made of star stuff as Carl Sagan used to say. He did not discover this, but he was very effective in, in uh, explaining astronomy and, and science to the public. And this star dust or star stuff phrase was one of his favorites. So we learned 
one heck of a lock from this supernova. But the tale isn't over. We're still learning from it. Because this supernova had a star that went off, the star before it went off, already had ejected some gases in one of these relatively gentle cosmic burps that I told you about near the beginning of my talk. This star, you know, before exploding, sometimes these stars go through a a series of gentle ejections. And it ejected a ring of material, and that ring has been gradually growing brighter in these hot spots. So what's happening is the star itself is expanding, and the ejected gases from the supernova are gradually hitting this ring of gas, interacting with it, and causing it to glow ever more brightly. So this supernova is now turning into a supernova remnant. And in a few years, the expanding supernova, the bulk of it, will hit this ring and presumably destroy it. So we will be watching the evolution of the supernova becoming a supernova remnant over the next few hundreds of years, uh, funding permitting and stuff. So, you know, uh, that's a, as long as we don't spend all of our money going to the moon next week and to Mars next year, okay? But anyway, meanwhile, the supernova itself is now becoming a resolved object. Notice it's no longer a point source. We can actually see that it looks kind of asymmetrical like this. And indeed, there's other evidence that suggests that these massive stars explode in an asymmetrical way. But to me, the most interesting mystery of this supernova, which will lead me into tomorrow's lecture, is that so far, we see not a shred of evidence for a neutron star in the middle. Where is the neutron star that was supposedly left over by this colossal explosion? We don't see it. Now, it's possible that it's hidden. There are gases still surrounding this thing. It's easy to block things from, from your perspective if there's a cloud of gas in the wrong place. But if there were a neutron star, the simple process of gravitationally accumulating whatever material is still in its vicinity should lead to a visible glow, at least according to some models. Other astronomers, however, say that this is evidence that maybe this star collapsed to form a neutron star only temporarily. We know that it did temporarily because neutrinos were emitted. But maybe after a short time, that neutron star found itself to be too massive to continue holding itself up. And maybe it continued to collapse to form something even denser, a black hole. A region where material is compressed to such a small volume that the local gravitational field is sufficiently strong to trap everything, even light. So nothing can escape. So here's a picture of a black hole, my prize-winning picture of a black hole. If anyone wants to buy it, for you, special price, $5,000, okay? But uh, you can easily take one yourself by keeping the cover of your camera on. In general relativity, what a black hole is, is a region where space and time are so severely warped that light can't escape. In a sense, in trying to dig its way out of this tunnel, it loses 
all of its energy. So by the time it gets out, there's no light left. It has ceased to exist. So basically, light can't get out. That's one way of thinking out about a black hole. Another way of thinking about it is it just, you know, just circles around. It just can't go in this direction. But in any case, we think that some massive stars collapse to form a black hole, not a neutron star. And although the jury is still out for supernova 1987a, tomorrow I will show you that some massive collapsing stars probably do fall sufficiently inwards that they form a, a black hole. And in that case, if you're ever near one of these things, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. You won't get out if you get too close. So if you want to study this for your PhD thesis, be sure to stay safely outside of one. Thank you very much. I'll be glad to entertain questions. Thank you, Alex, for a wonderful talk. Thank you. Yeah, I'll 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 I'll, re I'll repeat the questions. Um, I think that'll be easier, maybe. But there was a, a an article in the newspapers a couple of weeks ago about an object that went off in two tenths of a second and and gave off as much energy as all the stars in the Milky Way. Um, I'll, I'll say more about a class of objects that's like that tomorrow. They're called gamma ray bursts. Although this particular case was probably not a classical gamma ray burst that comes from the collapse of a massive star near the end of its life. Rather, this particular object was probably a, a, a weird class of a neutron star with an enormously high magnetic field. It's called a magnetar. And readjustments in the crust of that star or other methods of readjusting itself can, we think, give rise to such vast amounts of energy. But yeah, I'll be talking about a related kind of object, gamma ray bursts, tomorrow. So they can give off tremendous amounts of energy in a very, very short amount of time. But let me just say, that's not to say that that event dwarfs what I was telling you. When I said that 99% of the energy of the collapsing core comes out in the form of neutrinos. What I forgot to tell you was that that amount of energy released predominantly in one second is equal not just to the, all the stars in our Milky Way in one second, but rather it's equal to all the energy put out by all stars in the observable parts of the universe in one second. So the neutrinos still carry, you know, they still do most of the work. The gamma rays were bright, and that's all well and good, and it's the equivalent of the Milky Way. But, you know, generally the collapsing core of a massive star gives up as much energy as all the normal stars in the observable parts of our universe, not just the Milky Way galaxy. So, you know, these things are very impressive explosions. Yes? Yeah, so that's a very, why do we see rings rather than spheres around these things? This is, you know, well, there's two answers. First of all, often a ring is actually a sphere, but if you have like a balloon that you blow up, and it's a pretty thin balloon, you can look through the balloon, you know, actually I have a balloon right here. You can, um, 
I, I anticipate some of these things. But if you look through a balloon like this, um, okay. So if you're looking through the middle of it, you're looking through a thin layer of rubber here and a thin layer of rubber in the back. So you're not looking through much rubber. If you're looking along the edges, you're looking tangentially through the balloon. And if the balloon has any intrinsic thickness whatsoever, your path length through that tangent point is actually pretty long. So the gas looks brighter and it looks like a ring. However, in this particular case, we actually know that it's a ring, not a balloon, because it's too dark. It's about the same darkness there as it is there. And that's not the case for a balloon. You know, you see, you see rubber here, no rubber there, and then lots of rubber along the edges. So this thing really is a ring. And this is one of the reasons that some people think that the star that later became the supernova merged with another star prior to exploding. Because the process of merging means that you already have a well-defined plane, sort of an equatorial plane, along which there's a lot of rotation. There's not much rotation in the opposite direction. So these two stars merge. The merging causes the, the, the resulting star to be spinning quite rapidly. And then this gentle process of cosmic burps, this gentle ejection that I talked about, preferentially loses material along the plane of rotation because the material is held less strongly there than there. It's kind of like if I were to spin really rapidly, my jacket would go out like this because in its frame of reference, the, the jacket feels an outward force, a centrifugal force, kind of like what you feel at these amusement parks if you're on a rotating wheel, okay? So the gas in the equatorial plane feels a centrifugal force, and it gets ejected more easily, forming quite naturally these rings instead of spheres or ovals. That's a good question. Yeah, in the back there. So much energy, be a quasar. Yeah, the objects that emit a lot of energy, um, you know, there's supernovas, there's gamma ray bursts, there are these magnetars. Could they be quasars? Quasars emit huge amounts of energy, but they do so over hundreds of thousands or even millions, or in some cases even tens of millions of years. So they are much more steady in their production of energy, whereas these things are explosive. They're bursts. They happen for a short time. The quasars are thought to be powered by a giant black hole having tens or even hundreds of millions of times the mass of our sun, gradually swallowing material in its vicinity. And that swallowing process tends to emit energy. It's basically gravitational energy, like in the collapse of a star, but it happens over millions of years rather than just over a couple of seconds. So these bursty things we think are not quasars. But certainly, quasars are among the most energetic objects in the universe. Yeah. Yes? I'm sorry, what if? Light, light was a wavelength. Would, it, would a black hole affect it at all? Or if light is a wave? And not, and not made of particles. Oh, and not particles. Would, would a black hole still trap it? 
Yeah, that's a very interesting question. Light is both a particle and a wave. It turns out that a black hole can, can, can keep, can retain light inside it, regardless of whether you do the problem treating the light as a wave or as a particle. It makes no difference. The black hole still traps it. But it is true that in certain other kinds of experiments that we do in laboratories here on Earth, the behavior of light depends very much on the kind of experiment you're doing. Some experiments tend to highlight the wave aspects of light, and other, other experiments tend to highlight the particle aspects of light. But a black hole doesn't discriminate. <laughs> Traps everything. Yes? Uh, so uh, two things I don't understand about the explosion. So firstly, it's also a product of nuclear fusion, correct? So how can, it, how can a single event generate the energy of all the fusion going on okay. in all the observing So the question is, is it, if it's nuclear fusion, how can it generate as much energy as and, all the other stars combined? And second related question. You said it happens within a second, but this is a huge object. Light can't travel that fast. Yeah. So how is it yeah. coordinated? Okay, so two, two very good questions. Okay, so first of all, you, you, you're very perceptive and you caught me on something. The ones that emit as much energy as all the rest of the stars combined are not the thermonuclear explosions of white dwarfs. Those don't produce that much energy. They produce, if you want to be quantitative, roughly 10 to the 51 power ergs. But the core collapse guys produce 10 to the 53 power ergs. And the reason they're able to produce much more is that the core collapse guys are powered not by nuclear fusion. The nuclear fusion that I said occurs is a consequence of the explosion, not the cause of the explosion. The cause of the explosion in the case of the core collapse object is a roughly one solar mass object, roughly the size of the Earth, collapsing to the size of a city. The gravitational energy is given by Newton's constant g times the mass of the object squared divided by r the new radius that it has, not the old radius, because the old radius is, for all intents and purposes, infinity. Compared to 10 kilometers, the size of the Earth is negligible. Well, it's huge, but so gm over r gives you a negligible quantity. So you're taking something that has essentially zero energy, collapsing it to something that has gm m over r of negative energy, because gravitational energy is negative energy. That's why apples and things fall, okay? And 99% of that gravitational energy is emitted in the form of neutrinos. That amount of energy is the equivalent of a tenth of the sun's mass being turned into energy according to E equals mc squared. And that amount of energy, when you count up all the stars in the observable part of the universe, they are comparable. But that's because it's not a nuclear event. Now, your second question, I said that it was released in a second, but the stuff can't get out. Yeah, that's also very perceptive. Um, the reason the light takes a long time to brighten and fade is that, first of all, the light only gets out after the shock wave pummels its way through the star and heats up the surface. And then the surface glows for a long time. And there may even be radioactive nuclei that were synthesized, so they glow for a long time. That's all the aftermath of the explosion. The collapse occurs in less than a second. The neutrinos are emitted over the course of a few seconds. They get trapped for a couple of seconds, but not for very long. 
And then the neutrinos go flying through the star as though it weren't there. Because after all, I said they can fly through a light year of lead, and a star is much, much less material than a light year of lead. So the neutrinos do get out in the course of just a couple of seconds. So between friends, let's just call it a second. To an order of magnitude, the explosion happens in one second. But those are good questions, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, yes? What is the speed of neutrino? It's very close to, but not quite equal to the speed of light. And in fact, um, you, can, you can get a limit on how much mass the neutrino can have by timing the arrival of the neutrinos that were detected by these two detectors, one in Japan, one in the United States. The neutrinos came clustered over a time interval of at most about 10 seconds. If you had a whole bunch of tennis balls and you gave them a big kick, some would be given a lot of energy, some would be given only a little bit of energy. And so over there somewhere, the arrival time of all these tennis balls would be spread out over a considerable length of time. The fact that all these guys arrived at basically the same time to within a few seconds means that the rest mass, the mass at rest of the neutrino, has got to be very close to zero. The data were even consistent with zero. You couldn't tell. But more recently, there are other experiments of neutrinos coming from the sun by an observatory in Canada called the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory, which has made measurements that are most easily interpreted under the hypothesis that neutrinos do have a little tiny bit of mass, and this actually also allows them to change from one type to another. You may have heard of the solar neutrino problem. Not as many neutrinos are being detected from the sun as there have been. That's because quite a few of the neutrinos on their way from the core of the sun to us turn into a type that was not readily detected by the experiment which for the past few decades has been trying to detect them. So it was only detecting a fraction of them. The, the snow experiment has now found that, you know, there's more neutrinos than was thought to be the case from these other detections. And so that's most easily explained if the neutrino has a little tiny bit of mass. So it tra given its energy and a tiny bit of mass, it travels close to but not quite at the speed of light. Yeah. Yes, in the back there. I'm sorry, I didn't catch. The size of the dwarf is is determined by the limit which was predicted by by Chandrasekhar. The size of the white dwarf. dwarf. That's right. Chandrasekhar said it can't be more. I actually didn't give you that limit, but it's 1.4 times the mass of our sun. So when it reaches a mass about 40% greater than the mass of our sun, Chandra knew it had to be unstable in some way. He just didn't know exactly what would happen because he did this before type 1 supernovae were really known. But now later, we know that what's happening is this thing has reached the Chandra limit. And at that point, it has to do one of two things. It has to either collapse which some cases, that may still happen in some cases. There's a form of a collapse called accretion-induced collapse that may be one way of forming neutron stars. 
But the other thing that can happen to the white dwarf is that it can blow up. And that's what we see as a type 1, more specifically a type 1A supernova. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. And then over there. Mm -hmm. Are we seeing a majority of one type of supernova above another? And where are we seeing them? Are we seeing them uh, in what range? Yeah, okay. So do we see more of one kind than the other? We see more of the kind which are massive stars whose cores collapse. And that's because the other kind, the type 1As, only occur very rarely. You need a white dwarf that's sufficiently close to another star to be able to steal its material. Can't be what's called a wide binary because then you don't get enough transfer. And the transfer of material has to be within a, a narrow range of rates. If you transfer material too quickly, something bad happens. And if you transfer material too slowly, something bad happens. By bad, I mean not a supernova, okay? In particular, if you transfer material too slowly, what happens is hydrogen accumulates on this white dwarf for a while. And then it says, oh, I don't like this anymore. And the surface layers go through an explosive ejection and that's what we call a nova, a pretty good brightening of the star. But a nova only affects the surface layers. It's not a disruption of the whole thing. Now, a nova blows off as much or more material than had come in in the first place. So the mass of the white dwarf doesn't grow in such a situation, okay? So it never reaches the Chandra limit. If you accrete mass too quickly, then what happens is you form an envelope of hydrogen, and the thing, when it goes off, will not have a spectrum devoid of hydrogen. So that can't be a type 1A, okay? So anyway, type 1As occur only for the rare cases where conditions are suitable. And moreover, you have to wait a long time for a white dwarf to become a white dwarf and for the companion star to start spilling material over and... So they turn out to be very rare. The, the massive stars, well, they intrinsically are a lot rarer than low-mass stars, so you might think that they don't produce supernovae very frequently. But it appears that massive stars have pretty much just one way to die. They form a supernova. Maybe in some cases they form a black hole directly and, and are simply invisible. You know, that might happen. But, but the majority of massive stars appear to die by forming a supernova. So even though massive stars are much less numerous than low-mass stars, the conditions for forming a supernova are, are, much, are much better, you know. And so most of them form a supernova. So we see them going off more frequently. Now, as to where they occur, the, the core collapse supernovae only occur in regions where there's evidence that massive stars have formed in the relatively recent past, like in the last hundred million years or a few tens of millions of years. Because if there's only an ancient population of stars, well, all the massive ones will have already burnt out. And all you're left with are the low-mass guys. All right? Conversely, the white dwarf disruptions the type 1A supernovae, are not seen preferentially in regions where massive stars have recently formed. You kind of find them all over the place. And in particular, they are the only kind of supernova found 
in galaxies having only or predominantly an ancient population of stars. And there are galaxies called elliptical galaxies, or the central parts, the bulges of spiral galaxies, are ancient. That's where we tend to find these type 1a supernovae. The type 2s are in spiral arms where stars form, and the type 1as tend to be in older stellar populations. Okay? Yeah, over here. Um, times the distance um, uh, from the center of the Milky Way as the Earth is. And it, it, it was reported to be a runaway star leaving the galaxy. And I was curious to know if your collapser um, explosion models actually have enough energy to account for such a phenomenon. Yeah. I actually have not read that report because I was on the plane yesterday. Um, and I, it was an embargoed report, so I actually I knew it was coming out, but I didn't know anything about the study, and I haven't read the paper. So I'm, I'm speaking here as someone who has not read the, the paper that the astronomers wrote. But runaway stars can, in fact, be flung away um, from initially binary systems when, where one star explodes and the other star either has the motion that it had at the time of the explosion due to its normal orbital motion. That already can be pretty fast. So you, know, you blow up the star and the mass goes away and then the remaining star just goes zooming along the tangent to its path at the time that the rest of the star, you know, the other star blew up. But, so that can give pretty big motions, but, but these extra big motions are probably due to an asymmetric explosion which helps sling the other star away. And although a big massive blue star like this would be indeed news, that's quite interesting, we have plenty of evidence that neutron stars are formed from supernovae, and many of them are in the halo of our galaxy, not in the disk, not anywhere near spiral arms. And moreover, they're, they're moving like bats out of hell. They're just zooming along at huge speeds. So somehow these neutron stars had to have been flung out there. And so for decades, astronomers have said that some sort of binary plus an asymmetric explosion slings these guys out. Now this new report, from what I gather you're saying, is that this is not a neutron star, it's a more normal star that has been flung out. And that, that's really quite interesting, but I'll have to read the paper to comment in, in more detail on that. Ah, uh, sure, however long you want to. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, any final questions? Oh, sure, yes. Can dark energy or dark matter ever have any effect on star um, evolution theories? Oh, can dark energy or dark matter ever have any impact on stellar evolution? Um, very interesting question. We think the, the basic answer is no. And the reason is that um, unless the dark matter is, is in the form of a black hole and it gobbles up another star before it has a chance to explode or whatever, right? So suppose you have two stars in a binary system and one of them turns into a black hole and the other one gets sucked in or something like that, right? So that black holes are a form of dark matter, right? A very concentrated form of dark matter. Or this black hole could be coming along and it could just, you know, happen to hit the sun and gobble it up, right? But those are very unusual circumstances. 
In general, dark matter, we think, is spread out pretty uniformly in the universe, and it doesn't have that much effect on stellar evolution, although it could have a bit of effect. And dark energy, which I'll talk about on Friday, we think is spread out as uniformly as anything. I mean, it's the most spread out stuff. At least dark matter, in some cases, like black holes and burnt out stars and stuff, they're clumps. But dark energy, we think, doesn't clump at all. So on the physical size scale of a star, there's so little dark energy that it has no effect whatsoever. It's just like we think there's dark energy in this room, but there's so little of it in this room that it makes no difference whatsoever. But over the billions of light years to distant galaxies, as I'll explain on Friday, this dark energy dominates the universe. It's causing it to accelerate. But it's very uniformly spread out. And dark matter, most of it, we think, is pretty uniformly spread out because we think it's little subatomic particles left over from the Big Bang. But some, some fraction of the dark matter is black holes or burnt out stars, and it's conceivable that they occasionally interact and alter the evolution of a normal star. But I would say that's generally very rare. Almost never. Okay? Yeah. Well, I'll be available for more questions tomorrow evening and uh, Friday, or maybe even right now if people... Well, how about one last one? Okay, how about... Go ahead. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Then what? Then, uh, then it had four. Oh, can a star give out more energy as a supernova than it had before? Absolutely. A, a supernova gives out. Well, if you count the neutrinos, you know as much energy as all the stars in the observable part of the universe. But even the visible energy, which, as I said, is only a small percentage of the total, you know, one ten thousandth. That energy that we see over the course of a few weeks or a few months total easily exceeds the total energy given out during the normal life of the star. So, yeah, you've got something that's a billion times the brightness of the star, and it, and it lasts for, for months, you know. So the total amount of energy there is easily more than what the, the sun can give out over its lifetime. Yeah. So these are very powerful events. Okay, well, thank you very much for your attention. Just remind you, Alex will be here Thursday and Friday, and I'm sure we'll hear an exciting talk right. those days as well. Thank you. Same time, same place. <laughs>